Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm Scott Parkin, your co-host here in Berkeley, California, and I'm joined as always by... Uh, Bob Bazanko in Ohio. If I knew you were going to do that, I would have like tried to uh, a Wolfman Jack impression impression or something. And uh, this is our twentieth podcast, by the way. So uh, when we got started, we we had no idea what we would do, and we're already doing we've already done twenty. So this is really awesome. And we're joined for this milestone by Graham Kluckner, who's originally from the Pacific Northwest and up in Bellingham, Washington today. Graham served two tours in Afghanistan as an Army Ranger. He's now an anarchist organizer working with a, a water-based direct action group called the Mosquito Fleet, which we're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, he organizes on a variety of issues, including fighting oil pipelines, anti-militarism, anti-fascist organizing. Uh, he also works with About Face, which is, we'll also talk about About Face a bit, which was formerly known as the Iraq Vets Against the War. Welcome to the show, Graham. It's great to be here, gentlemen. And, uh, you know, 20 podcasts uh, is, is a pretty wonderful milestone. So I'm happy to be here, happy to talk. Uh, the quarantine has given us a lot of time to think and reflect and make good podcasts. So just kind of like diving into it. Uh, so you're, you're a vet, you served two tours in Afghanistan. Um, and I was kind of wanting to talk a little bit about just the sort of like anti-war movement politics of the time you served in the sort of mid-2000s. What were the perceptions of the anti-war movement when you were in the service? Did you share those perceptions and did they, and how did they shift once you were out? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I joined, I really wanted to believe deeply in the idea of America as a force for good in the world. And there were a lot of things that challenged that perception, especially early on in my service. You know, I, I entered in 2003, partly because of how many people were enlisting. So there was a delay in uh, enlistment. It took me over a year just waiting to, after I signed up to actually go to my training because of how many people were serving. Um, and so you know, there were all these little pieces of evidence that showed that the trajectory after invading Afghanistan, the trajectory towards Iraq, uh, towards this concept of weapons of mass destruction, um, which was something I just felt from a strategic standpoint was stupid. It always made sense to me. Well, if you want to get the so-called terrorists who attacked us on 9-11, you don't find them in Iraq, you find them in Afghanistan or Pakistan. And so why would you shift this? And, you know, the, there was always a bunch of questions for me about that, but I also wanted so badly to believe in the United States intervening in the world to produce democracy and to produce, uh, you know, a stable, electoral system and a stable economy where women could go to school. You know, I bought all of the media hook, line and sinker. Um, so there were, there were cracks though, in that, in that viewpoint, especially, uh, you know, in the weeks leading up to the Iraq war, uh, the invasion, I believe first bombing was on March 18th of 2003. And, you know, what was it? 10 million, 15 million people marching worldwide. Um, you know, in that, in that week prior to it, uh, I remember seeing a few newspaper articles uh, and I heard about the anti-war movement, but to be frank, uh, the perception was 
one of this is silly. You know, the, the things that really stood out in the imagery were like massive puppets and, um, you know, no blood for oil framing of the message. And it felt like, you know, in retrospect, as I look back now, all of the messaging was, this is what we're against and no to war. It wasn't no to war and yes to building up infrastructure in the United States or educating more of our people or here's an alternative. And not that that should be the responsibility of the left to produce those alternatives, but I would say no one else is going to. And so, so like if we don't articulate what the, what the world looks like uh, that's less militarized, I think it's really hard for people to imagine that. Um, I think a lot of people in my, in the military at the time um, were like, were, you know, it was like, well, what, what the hell do you want? You want people to keep attacking us? You want us to, uh, you know, just constantly be under threat from Islamic fundamentalists? Like, what's your alternative? And uh, because these sides were not talking to each other, you know, there wasn't really any, any discussion. I will say uh, an interesting thing that happened later on when Katrina started to happen in 2005, uh, we and you were, were and you were still in then too, right? right yeah, now. yeah. And we were deployed at the time, and I remember watching it on Chow Hall videos or TV. And you know, a lot of guys in my unit were like, "Oh, send us down there. We'll fix this problem in ten minutes." And the perception was that the problem, you know, it's interesting. You had Scott Crow on earlier, but the problem uh, was that people were rioting. The problem was not FEMA. It was not climate change. It was not the lack of any kind of cohesive humanistic response it was oh these people and it was never black people it was never that specific but it was these people are rioting and someone needs to bring force in there to put them down um, and it's important to remember that this time period you know mentioning the word capitalism in the early 2000s didn't even make a lot of sense it was like no that's just what is that's our system of course capitalism and to say socialism or anarchism i don't know that i was ever exposed to those words or those concepts, um, you know, anywhere before 2008. So, um, you know, I don't know that the left or the anti-war movement uh, ever really got its tentacles or its outreach into areas that I was involved in. Um, and I did not know really until the 2008, 2009, that there had been an anti-war movement, not only in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, with Iraq and Afghanistan, but throughout American history at every single conflict. Uh, and that was a big reason when I began to reject the military that I was able to find an outlet to transfer my energy and to help he myself heal and to start figuring out how do I put these pieces back together? Because the old worldview I had about America coming in and fixing things and doing good uh, was crumbling. It wasn't working for me anymore. I was starting to understand that Boeing and Lockheed Martin were the enemies. They were the ones in General Electric. They were the ones making the bombs and they were the ones profiting. And as long as they were profiting from war, a war was going to continue. Do you want to talk a little bit more about this idea of the military? Because, um, you know, for instance, in the 1960s and 70s, one of the, the most important groups was VVAW, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, which uh, actually the FBI had them listed as the number two most dangerous domestic threat uh, after the Black Panthers. Uh, and it became quite big. And, and at the beginning of every anti-war march in the Vietnam era, VVAW or Veterans for Peace led the, led the march. And um, to take it up to the present, I know just a, a several months ago, I read an article where uh, Bernie Sanders got three times more money from military families, you know, campaign donations than any other candidate did. 
and, and active military. And active military, right. And so, um, you know, and some of my most radical students ever have been, been veterans and you've had groups like IVAW. And, um, you know, a, a lot of people have this kind of stereotype that everybody who was in the military is, you know, this kind of gung-ho, Audie Murphy, John Wayne type. Uh, and and um, that's not true. And so I just like, you know, if you could just say a few things to let people know out there that the, the military, you know, like we were saying beforehand, soldiers ain't cops. There's a big difference. Uh, you have this big diversity and a lot of them, you know, having witnessed firsthand what happened in Vietnam, what happened in Central America in the 80s. I talked to a lot of people in the 80s. Uh, active duty guys who said, I'm not going to Nicaragua, I'm not going to El Salvador, I'm not going to go down there. And then groups like IVW or Afghan Vets Against the War, just to kind of let them know that the, the military actually is, is a, can be a, a very important force for, for uh, non-intervention, anti-imperialism, peace. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, I think it's interesting. We talk a lot about intersectionality in the left, and uh, really a key component of that is the language that we use is centering uh, the people's, you know, the most affected people at the at the center of our discussions and our analysis about how we take on uh, the challenges and the threats that we are fighting in the movement. And I think it's important whenever we're thinking about militarism, it's not only the people of Iraq and Afghanistan that are targeted, but it's also the images of the oppressors. In this case, the, the occupiers, the soldiers, people like me, um, we're both oppressors and oppressed in the sense that, um, yes, we're doing this violence to other people and we're we're using force to, to uh, you know, achieve the United States' so-called goals. And at the same time, doing that behavior on behalf of these power structures do, does damage to you. Um, and so when you look at the anti-war movement, um, you know, as far back as the 1960s, it's important to distinguish the differences between then and now. Of course, there was a military draft during the 1960s and 70s. Uh, it is an all-volunteer military today. And it's a much smaller in terms of total numbers. So at the height of the Vietnam War, there's somewhere around 650,000 American soldiers in Vietnam. We never reached that number in Iraq or Afghanistan. Part of it is that you have better technologies. You don't need one soldier can do what four or five did in Vietnam today. Um, but an interesting distinction back in the in the Vietnam era was that uh, you know a lot of people when you meet them and they and they say, oh well, but, well Vietnam, of course there was so many people resisting. It's because they had a draft. And in fact, the statistics don't bear that out. The people who resisted, the people who joined VDAW were more often than not, they were people who had enlisted, who had volunteered to go into the military. And there was some level of um, violation, some level of trauma that had happened where they had believed in the system or they believed in the mission. And when they found out that the mission was corrupt or that they had been lied to, they actually had more skin in the game, if you will. And so their participation in the movement, once they left the military, was deeper than those, the average soldier who had been drafted. Now, of course, in the modern day, um, you know, there's what we call an economic draft. So a lot of people are not joining the military because of patriotism. I would say like somewhere like 15, 20%, that's a, a motivating force is, is patriotism in America. Um, but more, more often than not, people are joining because uh, it's a middle-class job immediately. You're a working class person overnight. You, if you have a family, you have kids, you have a partner, uh, they get healthcare, they get housing. You get somewhat of a middle-class income coming in and you have stability over a period of years that you can predict. Um, and there's no other areas in American society left that you can just take that step. You know, you can't 
go in with unskilled trades into into a union or something like that. But you can in the military because they just take you, they break you down, and they retrain you and make you into something else. Um, and one of the other misnomers I think that's important to to understand between the Vietnam era and now um, is the race disparity in the military. So during Vietnam, uh, black and Latino young men were targeted uh, heavily during the draft and heavily for recruitment, whereas that is much different today. I mean, as of 2011, the numbers that existed for, um, you know, men and women in the military, uh, you had around 12 to 17% women in the military and, and men as an overall population, 77% of the US military was white male. And so you had this incredible focus on recruiting middle class and, and lower middle class white men and exploiting some of the, uh, uh, to, to be crude about it, but to exploit some of the daddy issues that exist in, in our male population in the United States. This idea of like wanting to make dad proud or wanting to do something that makes you into a man very quickly. I mean, that was a big motivating factor for me to grow up and to be responsible. And of course, there's also elements of adventure. Um, but really, you know, when you look at the populations that leave the military, they're often confused about the state of the world. They're not, the, the worldview that they had when they entered has been shifted, if not shattered. Uh, and a lot of young men and women are looking to recreate meaning in the world. And that journey begins the day you leave the military and you're basically on your own. You leave a community and you're suddenly isolated and an individual. Um, and, you know, people struggle to find purpose after that. It's one of the reasons that uh, veterans have a suicide rating of 22 to 24 a day, kill themselves. It's the highest suicide rate of any demographic in the United States. And while there is a significant strain of right-wing fundamentalism within the military and dominionist Christianity within the military, there's also, you know, socialist, anarchist, um, you know, there's communists. There's, there's, the military is a amalgamation of America. And it has people from all these different backgrounds. And many of those people learn, uh, you know, when you're in the military, you learn things like, hey, it's actually nice when we pool our resources and share and collaborate and cooperate. And that makes you, you know, much more open-minded about collectivity and working together when you leave the military. One of the biggest critiques of veterans is that our society is individualized, that it's fractured, that we don't collaborate and help each other out. Um, and, you know, when you look at, who leads these movements, these anti-war movements, they're always led by the people who fought in them first and foremost. They're always the people who had the eyes on the ground. They saw what uh, was being done on behalf of the American people um, and what was being done with our checkbooks and our taxes. And there's a power in that that can, you know, when you hear, we always say, speak truth to power. Well, when you hear veterans and, and uh, soldiers and speak about what they did, it has a power that cuts right through the right-wing narrative. That was always what, uh, uh, like VVAW said, we were there, and so we saw things that you didn't. And, um, you know, you had this myth back then that, you know, these soldiers came home and everybody spit on him and hippies hated him and all that, and that's far from true, absolutely not true at all. In fact, if a vet went to an anti-war meeting, I mean, immediately they said, tell us what you saw, you're a witness. And I think, you know, like I said, that's important for people to, to, to know. Now, I know you're not active duty. I assume you do have contact. Uh, and military morale, I, I get the sense right now, is pretty low. Um, you know, you saw just, what, two days ago, Trump announced a, a stop on, on uh, guys who were um, 
you know, National Guard guys a, a day before they could get benefits. And you have, you know, like the, the, the commander of that carrier, which was overtaken by COVID, was fired. And I just wondered if, if you've seen anything like that before in, in what you're doing. Like if, if things right now are at a different stage than they normally would, would have been. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that there's, you know, a, a large amount of the veterans community, a majority of the veterans community that votes, voted for Trump over Clinton in 2016. Um, and I think, you know, really one of the things that the, you know, if you're sitting around in, at your parents' house and they've got Rachel Maddow on, I think it's important to understand that there's other reasons people vote for Trump than that they're racist or are manipulated by Russian bots. And one of those big reasons is that Trump was one of the first candidates to just call bullshit on the Iraq war and to, you know, for, for reasons that we may not agree with, he was saying things like, well, we should have taken all the oil and gotten out of there. Well, that's not, you know, that's not a good conclusion either, but at the very least Trump was raising, um, you know, like was standing up in class and just saying what everybody knew, which is that, Hey, for 20 years, we've been fighting the global war on terror. We've lost, we are wasting our lives. We're wasting money and a significant amount of people uh, that voted for Trump are the people from communities whose sons and daughters were the ones who had to go to these wars. You know, 2.8, 2.9 million people have served in Iraq, Americans have served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, upwards of 7,000 have died. And in the 70,000s of serious injuries, not to even talk about post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injuries, which is in the hundreds of thousands. You know, these are these children that are now adults that have served in these wars are the ones uh, who come from a lot of these less privileged, economically privileged backgrounds. And so that Trump spoke to those people. He said, you know, we're not gonna fight these stupid wars anymore. And people bought, you know, if you go back and you look at the voting record the last 20 years, a lot of our elections have been around these wars. The, the politics after the election has not, but if you look at 2006, the, you know, the Democrats take back the house, that was because of opposition to Iraq. You know, Katrina helped, but it was really centered around that. Obama would never have defeated Hillary Clinton or gotten on the map had he not said, we don't fight dumb wars, and Iraq was a dumb war. And we're yeah, his, his opposition to Iraq, people forget that, was, was, that's what propelled him. I mean, yeah. that was the difference there. And, and it's important to remember that because the Democrats never fully followed through on their commitments, not just to that, but also Guantanamo, and these are nuanced issues, of course, there's yeah. reasons why they didn't, but the, the perception is that the Democratic Party, you know, never actually believed any of those things. And so once they got into power, they didn't end the wars. And so someone like Trump, uh, you know, just saying, screw it, burn it all down is appealing, because at the very least, they're telling us the truth that we all know, which is that these wars are bankrupt, they're stupid, they're counterproductive, and they need just, to end. They've just been a, a huge loss of lives and treasure. And in 2016, I know Scott and I used to talk about that all the time. Like Trump was flanking left on these foreign policy issues rhetorically. Yeah. yeah. He criticized NATO, and all these liberals are going nuts. It's like, you know, what, we've been against NATO forever, and now this guy's saying that you hate him, you know? Uh, One of the things I was actually saying to my parents the other day that just blew, they, they were fundamentally disagreed with me, but I was like, you, know, you better watch out because the Democrats have fully embraced the corporatist agenda. And at the very least, or, you know, in 10 years, we could all find ourselves voting for Republicans simply because of the language they're using, not because, <laughs> you know, they actually have policies to help working people, but at the very least, they're, they're giving lip service. I want to add just on, on the, um, you know, the modern day, I, I think that there's a significant amount of people in the military that have questions about, uh, 
you know, quote unquote leadership in the White House. There's a, a significant amount of roles in the military that are appointed by the president that haven't been staffed properly, including, you know, the rest of the government, of course, is not yeah. fully staffed. But, um, you know, picking and choosing generals based on um, how they give Trump a PowerPoint of only two pictures or, you know, the, the, there's people in the military that are, are very concerned about uh, they truly believe that the U.S. military needs to be an elite fighting unit and be ready for anything. And, um, you know, so there are people that I think uh, are seriously concerned within the military. And you also have, again, if we don't address economic issues and provide alternatives to people, whether it's through counter recruitment or it's through mass movement building, uh, people are going to continue to join the military. It's not because they want to go kill people necessarily, although there is that smaller segment of the military, just people want to blow shit up or sociopaths, but that's a very small segment. You know, you just saw all of these uh, military members re-enlist. You know, the, the, the rates of re-enlistment are very high right now because it's unpredictable in COVID-19. If you're not going to get a job, you damn well better stay in the military past what your career plans were. So you have people that were going to do three years or four years active duty, and they're staying in longer now because of COVID-19. Until the left can produce some sort of economic solution to people's problems, uh, we're going to continue to have the problem of militarism in American society. I have two questions, which are a little bit unrelated. So I'll just go with the first one is like kind of like based on some of these like trends in the military, does the uh, retired military, active military, do they actually feel like somewhat betrayed by Trump? And do you think this will like lead to, you know, excluding the sort of like kind of patriotic segment, do you think they will like lean more towards the Democrats this round of this round of elections? I mean, it's clear they went for Bernie Sanders pretty overwhelmingly, at least in the sort of in the money polls. But like, is is there going to be a shift um, based on like the incompetence of the Trump administration, the sort of like unfulfilled promises, that sort of thing? Well, it really depends on what kind of shell campaign the Biden candidacy is able to put out there. I mean, if there's not an alternative like what, you know, you vote for the thing that at least feels genuine, even if it seems insane, which is one of Trump's best uh, tactics. I think it's important to understand that veterans are not just, and soldiers are not just voting and supporting Bernie Sanders um, in, in incredible numbers because uh, he's an alternative to Trump. They're doing it because Bernie Sanders is responsible for the modern uh, post 9-11 GI Bill. Without him, there wouldn't be access to college at the level that veterans now have. He, you know, the GI Bill expired over many years. I mean, we were living off of a World War II era economic plan that was passed in, you know, 46. What Bernie did was he went out and he's always been focused on veterans issues. He's been talking about it for 40 odd years even when he's anti-war and he's anti, for the most part, anti-intervention overseas, with the exception of Kosovo and, you know, an arms plant in his district. Uh, but he, he's consistently supported veterans and said, like, look, if you're going to pay and send these people off to war, you're going to damn well pay for them to get their medical care when they come back. And veterans and active duty members see that. They do track the news. They are tracking which politicians are genuine. Um, and most, most people see Joe Biden as someone who, as little as 10 years ago, wanted to break Iraq into three separate countries based on ethnic background, which is just insanity. You know, he's like, oh, so there should be a Sunni state, a Shia state, and a Kurdish state, and that'll make sense. We'll just make more borders, and that'll solve these problems that are, in, in a lot of ways, created by Western powers drawing borders on a map. 
Um, you know, so Biden is, is not someone I think that's going to appeal as much. Uh, and then, you know, the hope that one must have, I guess, is that Trump is so bad that people vote for Biden, you know, like my parents would. They just just so that the chaos of everyday news cycle goes down and their anxiety level goes down. It's not for any structural reason. Yeah. My other second question kind of like segues a little bit into like the kind of next topic we're hoping to talk about, which is I, I read a, in prepping for the episode, I read a, a study about white supremacy in the military and how there's like a, a growing trend towards white supremacy. The military leadership is trying to figure out how to better control that, but it doesn't seem to be uh, working. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you could comment a little bit on, on that. Well, white supremacist groups in the United States, going back to even the 1950s and the John Birch Society movement, if you can call it a movement, um, have always pushed their members to join the military to gain skills and then to bring those skills back to their fascist or, you know, hard right revolutionary purposes. You know, groups like the base, which was a, a neo-Nazi outfit in the 1980s that actually is from the region that I uh, currently inhabit. Um, you know, these groups targeted veterans because one, they had skills, but two, they had uh, a sense of betrayal potentially um, that was deeper than the average American. And so the ability to, to, to take their story of, hey, you volunteered for America, you were betrayed by that, here's how to get revenge or here's how to find an alternative purpose in your life and then- Here's how to do it right. Like here's how to do it right. Yeah, here's how to do it right, um, far right. So that's always <laughs> been a factor. And I think uh, you know, the, the military you know, the military has struggled with how to deal with those folks. You know, one of the rule, for example, we had rules on tattoos. You had to get like permission to get certain, to get any tattoos that could be seen above the wrist or above the neck or anything that in a uniform you might be able to perceive. One of the phrases we used to say is like, in the, we don't do race in the military. We don't do gender in the military. Everybody's green, you know? And that's not always true, obviously, but... Well, there's a um, line there's from that. Full Metal Jacket where he's like, none of you are black or brown or white. You're all equally, you know, shit. disgusted. Yeah. yeah, you're all equally yeah. shit in my, in my view. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we need to, as a society, we need to understand that people who tend towards violence might trend towards joining the military. So if you believe um, that change comes through like hellfire and, and violence, as many fascists do, um, you're probably going to have those people gravitate towards a place where you could get trained in that stuff. Um, and there's no out processing in the military that really like tries to understand the ideology of people leaving the military. Somebody might be a threat or somebody's abusing their, their spouse, which is generally a really good indicator that they might do violence in society if they're abusing their loved ones in the beginning. Just like if you're abusing animals as a child, you might flag that one and say, hey, we should look more into this. Um, but I also think, you know, like one of the things that I talk with the Civil Liberties Defense Center about a lot is uh, police violence and, you know, it's, it's really interesting because you can look at the statistics of police violence and a lot of veterans join the police force. Um, the police all over the country are directly recruiting veterans for a whole host of reasons. But when you look at shootings, of, uh, police shootings of, of American citizens, the rate of veterans who are police officers doing those shootings is much, much lower. It's three times lower than what you're seeing from just like a normal guy who went to high school and then became a, a cop. 
And I, you know, part of that I think is just training. I think when you're in the military, the idea of shooting at something that a target that you haven't identified as a threat is a big no-no. You have to actually like identify the threat, uh, verify that they have a weapon, verify there's no other way to deal with the situation than to shoot them. Um, and then to do that. Whereas I clearly cops are just like untrained, you know, handling weapon systems they should not be handling. And then, uh, you know, operating from a place of like fear and hatred so much that they can just gun down people. So I, I do think there's a level of discipline that the military has the potential to train you with. Doesn't mean it'll take, uh, but, you know, one would, I mean, I believe that we shouldn't have cops, but if we're going to have them in the short term, it'd be nice to have some better training systems so they're not accidentally shooting or intentionally shooting everything that comes across their path. Maybe some better recruitment uh, techniques as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, oh, go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say, it, it, you know, I keep thinking like, going back, we, we often use movies as reference, but you know, like in Platoon, you had the black soldiers and the white soldiers and you know, the, the, the white soldiers drank beer and the black guys got head. And the, the, and the heads. The, and the heads, right? Yeah. The, 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 well, the juicers and the heads. I mean, there was yeah. this, like I talked to a lot of guys in DVAW. Um, inside the, the military, when you were in, or even now, do you have kind of those kind of internal divisions where you have guys who, like one of the biggest markers now for joining the military is when you had a family member in it. So it's almost become kind of like a family career. And, and, and Southern states, obviously, even more so. Appalachia. That, it's, that's a big family tradition in, in like, Appalachian states. Yeah, yeah. So, but inside the military, do you have already? Do you see those divisions where some guys are really gung ho and they want to go out there and kill Arabs or kill whatever, versus guys who are looking at it as, hey, I got health insurance, I can get some skills, I got a job right now, and I'm not going to go out and like risk my life and and kill people needlessly. Yeah, and uh, well, I'll, you know, this is quite a bit anecdotal, but um, and it's really interesting to look at where recruitment patterns are high or low in the United States. You know, so for example, deindustrialization, you can take a, a snapshot of where that is in the United States and you can see like a massive increase in enlistment starting in the 1980s throughout the Great Lakes regions, for example. Yeah. Uh, but of course, you know, Appalachia, Texas, you know, the Deep South, those places always draw more people. They also have a significant, uh, significantly larger amount of military bases. So when people get stationed in these places, they have exposure to the civilian population and you know, young kids growing up um, have the opportunity to maybe have more exposure to the military and feel like it's more part of your, your community. I also think like your access to guns as a, as a kid has, you know, for me, I like never had access to guns, but like a lot of, a lot of young people really liked guns. And that was a, a you know, one marker of, hey, I should join the military and like be even more professionally trained in these tools. Um, in terms of race, you know, what we saw, I was part of this thing called JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, and it uh, includes the Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, Delta Force, or CAG, and um, a, no a number of other very, very specialized, small amounts of people, um, you know, somewhere around only about 3% of the actual entire military is, is, is part of the Special Operations community, um, but it's much more white than any other part of the, of the military. And my theory of that, it, you know, when you look at places like Germany or Korea, um, you had a lot more people of color, especially black soldiers who would uh, not only be stationed there in the beginning, but they would re-up, they would re-volunteer to stay in those areas. And they're lower, you know, they're, they're lower conflict areas. You're not going to go to war with East Germany when you're stationed at Stuttgart, you know, or you're, 
probably not going to go to war with North Korea when you're stationed uh, near Seoul or Camp Red Cloud or whatever. Um, so I, I think that there, you know, people of color especially make decisions in the military that are based more around job security in the future, job skills, um, the ability to like do my time, get out and get a, get a job in my quote unquote field. And so there are, you know, hundreds of different jobs that one can have in the military. There's only so many door kickers. Like really when you go to war, uh, only about 10% of the people who are serving in the war are doing shooting or are doing missions and doing the actual fighting. Those people, those 10% have to be fed. They have to be transported. They have to be educated. They have to be resupplied. They have, you know, there, there's a whole infrastructure and the left could learn a lot about this. There's a whole infrastructure that exists to support the war fighters. And those jobs are not always, shall we say, offensive jobs. They're not things that, uh, you know, everybody is taught how to use a rifle in basic training, but your job might be pumping gas or your job might be, you know, cleaning fuselages of aircraft or whatever. Um, and those roles, I don't know why exactly, like what part of the culture it is, but those roles are often filled more by people of color um, then it then they're filled by white folks, whereas the white folks tend to be much more in the infantry um, in the modern day, which is a total flip from where it was in Vietnam or Korea. Uh, you know, kind of still on this idea of, of this question around white supremacy and the far right, we've seen like a lot of these far right groups really kind of grow exponentially post global war on terror, Iraq, Afghanistan. We've also seen it become more mainstream. Now here in the COVID era, we're seeing them where they're like some of the more like visible, aggressive groups showing up at state capitals, particularly like Michigan or Huntington Beach, California. And I'm, I'm wondering, you also do a, a bit of anti-fascist organizing. I'm going to guess some of your anti-militarism organizing also focuses on this. But like, why, why do you think we're seeing that trend, the, the sort of mainstreaming and growth of these far-right groups? Well, I think a lot of it is that, that normies in America are just finally noticing that this is a major strain in American politics. Um, you know, the, of course, the Internet has not helped in this area that like, you know, perhaps in the 1990s, you would have some militias in Michigan that were not talking to militias in Oklahoma so much. Um, and you also had a major, major setbacks for the fascist and, and right wing religious militia movement, the patriot movement in the 1990s after uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. So you had, you know, you had this major spike in awareness about it after Ruby Ridge. And then, of course, Waco happens and and every every right wing nightmare of the black helicopters are coming was proven true. And so the, you had this major spike in uh, participation in militias and anger towards the U.S. government. But then once the Oklahoma City bombing happens and it's oh my goodness, it's not Arabs from the Middle East who did this. It's a white boy from the United States who's a veteran who, who served overseas um, in the Gulf War. There was a major crackdown from the FBI after that. And there was also massive public support for that crackdown. Um, and, you know, you can go back and look at the Southern Poverty Law Center in like 1999 and 2000. And they're literally sending reports out to people uh, and they're a great organization. They do great work. But they were sending reports out to their members saying, have we seen the end of the militia movement forever? <laughs> and it's so dated now because, you know, once you had um, uh, President Blackie uh, come in, as they would put it, they just, the right wing just exploded. And there was this, you know, a, you couple, you couple like the first black president with an, a massive economic downturn. 
that has been predicted by patriot movements and far-right fascist movements that have blamed it on the Jews, the economic situations on the Jews, or blamed it on a global conspiracy of the Rothschilds and these big economic movers. And suddenly, because there's no narrative from the Democratic Party that helps us understand capitalism is the thing that's doing this to us, because there was no alternative narrative, the only narrative that existed, or the only one that was really had, had some legwork for the last 20, 30 years, was this far-right fascist ideology. So, so when you only have one narrative, about, same thing with Trump, right? Like, if you have one guy that's at least telling you what you see is true happening around you, then that one, that ideology is going to win out. It's actually the, the, the most mainstreaming of this thought is Trump getting elected. And it's like what we were talking about before about his perspective on like wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is like, we lost a lot of people. We wasted a lot of money. We didn't even get the oil. And then it's also this like America is no longer great uh, because partially because of, and you know, he was openly critical of like the Bushes around 9-11, around the invasion of Iraq. And John McCain. And John McCain, you know. And so it's this, it's this like notion that like America has lost its prestige, which is a little bit how America was post-Vietnam. And so his theme becomes, let's make America great again. Yeah, I think there's, um, I think there's also an element, you know, there's a, we saw this with the recent, uh, let's call it invasion of Venezuela that happened with those like three Green Berets and, you know, the, the, the former Venezuelan troops that turned out like spectacularly hilariously. You know, and you actually saw the military, the veterans community just like make so much fun of these people. You know, like, there's, a, there's an element there where I think some people do join the military to try to have an adventure and go be the badass. We, we, what do we call it? The, um, the LARP, the military LARPing where you're live action role playing, where you're like, Oh yeah, I've got this kid. I got body armor. I got all these expensive weapons. I probably couldn't run a hundred meters without losing my breath. Cause I'm not in shape at all, but I, but I definitely am playing this role. Yeah, um, that's a, that's that, the Michigan capital, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, one guy's like 400 pounds, you yeah. know, and, and he's got his bandolier on and, you know, no, it's, yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, it's sad. It's, it's just, sad. it's scary, but it's, it's sad. And I think there's a, a level of, of people that, that feel like maybe they missed out and on, on their kick-ass war experience that they were taught from American media was, was something that was good. And it's also bleeds into some very serious uh, threats that we have to address around the hero worship that we put upon cops and soldiers. And now we've extended it. It's now caregivers and hospitals and doctors which I don't have actually that much of a problem with if we're going to substitute like doctors and care workers for the military. That's a great step in the right direction, I think. Um, but, you know, this hero worship has in, in a lot of ways prevented us from, as a culture, from taking a, a serious look at, um, you know, what is it, you know, when you thank me for my service, what are you actually thanking me for? You know, what is your assumption behind that, that I did for you? Do you think that like there was a terrorist from Saudi Arabia coming to take your children and bomb them. And then because of Graham, that didn't happen. You know, what is that assumption? And that those questions that, that thank you for your service initial part of a conversation is actually like an impediment to having a, a real conversation about what was your military experience? What did you do on behalf of the American people, whether we wanted you to or not? And, um, you know, as it, as it relates to far right and fascist organizing, I think that, uh, this is not going away. I think it's really important to understand that there are underlying economic 
reasons, and it's going to get worse with the crash that's coming from COVID-19, um, you know, these people are not being talked to or reached out to by the left at all. We have all of our little subgroups. We don't like feeling uncomfortable. We have developed an entire ideology in the left to protect ourselves so that people can, quote, feel safe. And it's not going to allow us to hear ideas or talk to people that fundamentally disagree with us, that actually pose a serious threat to us. We need to be talking to those people. You know, you can look back at the, at the you know, IWW and labor work that was done, um, you know, with people who fit the same economic background that is now fueling the far right. Like those people at one point were radical mo movement building workers, and now they're only being tapped and recruited and spoken to by elements of the far right. So someone like Trump definitely mainstreamed that. I don't even know that he understands fully what's going on in the, in the Steve Bannon to, um, to like neo-Nazi fringe community, but they're not fringe anymore. That's also part of the problem. They're, they're expanding. They have an ideology. They have a plan. They know where they're going. They know how they think they're going to get there. And they're executing that on a daily basis. And they're given resources uh, and, by billionaires. And they're given resources. Some of, some of them, some of them. Mm-hmm. What's about faces role? Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, uh, I would assume that, you know, um, you know, every time I've been involved in a movement, there was a special place for groups like that, IVAW, VVAW, that's for peace, whatever. Um, do you still find that, you know, people look at you differently, kind of give you a, a little more credibility because of your experience and you have a role to play in kind of creating that bigger movement? Yeah, it's a great question. If anybody's um, going to talk to these militia guys, it's going to be you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that I personally pride myself on is the ability yeah. to, to be in rooms with people with diverging political and ideological experiences. It still makes me crazy. It's still yeah, frustrating. Yeah, yeah. It's triggering as hell, uh, yeah. but that doesn't mean that it isn't, it isn't work that we need to do. Um, you know, as far as About Face, I'm not involved with About Face uh, anymore. I, oh, I worked okay, with IBW for a number of years and have really transitioned into primarily to climate change work. Now, okay. from that climate change work, that I'm always bringing that militarism lens to it because, you know, ExxonMobil and Shell and Chevron, they're all on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're all interested in mining the resources there and stabilizing the global oil markets to make predictable oil choices. So, like, you know, any, any addressing of militarism has to deal with climate change. And the flip side is true. The 350s, the Sierra Clubs, the NRDCs, you know, these big greens that you all have talked about in the past, um, until we have a climate movement that is centering militarism and centering uh, foreign policy as a key part of winding down our uh, economic climate system that is destructive, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. You can ride your bike all day long and Lockheed Martin did more in the last second to destroy the earth and and emit carbon than you will your entire lifetime. So, you know, individual change is not going to fix this problem. It can help you on a moral level. It can make you more legitimate in your organizing, but it's not going to fix the problem. Um, you know, when I'm doing climate work, it does help that I am a veteran. It helps because I think people assume that I've gone through some ideological transitions, which I have. Um, they assume I have some skills and I might be calmer under pressure, which I pride myself on. Uh, you know, but there's also the flip side of that where because of the Rambo movies and because of a lot of the media that's happened, people think veterans are all going, we're ready to break at any moment and that we might snap, we might have massive anger issues. And for the most part, veterans are, are doing like self-harm. They're not doing 
harm externally to other people. They're hurting themselves whenever they're having like post-traumatic stress issues or depression or anxiety issues. Um, but I think that one of the things that frustrated the hell out of me when I was doing anti-war work on a daily basis was we would be invited to a lot of leftist spaces. And there was a level of respect that existed there. People wanted to hear us talk, but they wanted to hear us tell a story they had already heard. They wanted to hear from us that, um, you know, we had been brainwashed, that we had been manipulated into believing a certain thing about the world and poor us. Oh, you broken soldiers. It was this liberal tendency to like caretake and want to, um, you know, let us know that we were forgiven or something. Bring you into the safe space. Yeah, that we had a safe space to, to feel our feelings. And what we wanted as veterans was to end the fucking wars. We wanted to get out there and do something about the wars. And I found ourselves in all these meetings talking about, you know, every checkbox of the left, which was fine for like a year. It was like, okay, cool. Let's get everybody on the same page about, about feminism. Let's understand that everybody's equal. Let's understand who's disproportionately affected. Awesome. And then let's use that to go take power from these war criminals and change the trajectory of the war. You know, I worked with Afghans and Iraqis who I remember this meeting where we're all sitting there and we were going, I don't know, nine, 10 hours talking about power and privilege. Um, and this, this uh, Afghan woman was just like, raised her hand at one point. She's like, this is all wonderful. And I think you all should do this on your own time, but we're here to stop my village from being bombed. Can we talk about that please? And now some people would argue you can't talk about that until you talk about all these other things, um, which, you know, there's truth to all of those, all of those things. But I, my biggest frustration, uh, especially with the liberal, and I mean liberal, not radical left, but the liberal communities, was this tendency towards witnessing that I think, you know, obviously comes from the Quakers and, and has some uh, great legacy in some ways, but uh, we need more than witnessing right now. We've all witnessed the problems of the last 20 years. We've all, we're all aware of them. We don't need any more education to understand them. We need a plan. We need a strategy and we need to win power and disperse it in different ways, but we need to be an effective revolutionary force. And in order to do that, we're going to have to talk to people that make us uncomfortable, that we disagree with, that may not have our utopia in mind, but they do agree that we shouldn't be sending our sons and daughters over to kill other poor farmers in other countries for rich billionaires. On, we can on get people flip, on board with that. On the flip side of that, you know, and I've, I've gotten in a lot of arguments over this in the last 20, 30 years, you've seen major movements uh, for gays in the military, for women to be in combat. Um, you know, in 2018, the Democrats found a bunch of vets and CIA people to run for office. Yeah. And now, instead of having this anti-imperial uh, uh, approach, which you just talked about, and Scott and I talked about a lot on our last show with Ho Chi Minh, um, and the left kind of ignores that. You know, uh, they don't talk about Venezuela. They don't talk about Cuba. Uh, but I mean, does like how do you how do you you know uh, approach that when people say, oh, we need more women in combat, we need more gays, you know? And those are all. I'm, I mean, I'm obviously I'm against discrimination, right? But yeah, I didn't grow up in a left where getting people in the military was our goal. You know, it was always getting people out of the military. Well, and, we don't have a left that's internationalist anymore. That's well, exactly. that's good. That's what I wanted you to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we do not. We do not have the only issue we know about outside of the United States is Palestine, um, and and even well, that. well, no, and China caused COVID too. We know that. Now. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> Fauci uh, in a lab in Wuhan did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 
um, it's infuriating. And, and when I was still a Republican and I came home from my first deployment, I remember wanting so badly to, I thought everyone was going to be like, Graham, tell us what's going on. What's happening in, in, uh, you know, on behalf of us overseas and nobody like people cared to the extent that they wanted, they cared about me personally. And they wanted to, you know, how was your experience? But it was always these two or three sentence answers that I would give. And then they would want to move on and talk about whatever the hell else was going on in their lives. So there's, there was, I also think that people don't know how to talk about this stuff. And I understand that. And that's been some of my work is to try to just translate, Hey, here's how to talk about really uncomfortable things with, with war criminals and veterans. And, um, you know, the, the, we don't have an internationalist approach to foreign policy. And I also, you know, if you are thinking that adding to the list of possible recruits to be war criminals is a priority for the left, then you're bankrupt in your ideology. Hey, we gotta that. That's a teaser yeah. quote for the show, Scott, right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's, it's just ludicrous. I mean, it's look, a 2016 campaign slogan, right? <laughs> well, and running these people too, like, look, what you're going to get when you have like a Tammy Duckworth who, yes, she's a woman and yes, she's a veteran. And that's it for like the, the things that we might have in common with Tammy Duckworth. Like the, the politics of a lot of these people, the Democrats are running, is going to shift the, the Democratic Party to even more right-wing politics. Even if they call themselves Democrats, they're going to be interventionists. You saw that, you know, you saw this with Hillary Clinton. It was much more likely she would start a war with Russia and you, over the Ukraine or start a war with Russia over Syria than, you know, Trump ever was. And well, she, she hard, both bragged about that, that she'd have no problem invading Iran. Yeah. I mean, this stuff like She's, she was apparently the, the big force behind Libya. Yeah. I mean, I think people don't realize that, that the Democrats are, are every bit as interventionist, probably more so in the 20th century. Uh, and uh but I've noticed this even this year, you know, I'll, I'll see these, oh, look at this campaign. This is the best campaign ad ever. And it's a woman who talks about being a vet. And uh, again, you know, obviously all of us believe in, in equal opportunity and equal access. But, um, you know, I, I always thought, you know, like I said before, like our, our job is to get people out, you know, not, not into wars, but out of wars. Yeah, but I mean, in a sense, it's like some circles I've been in lately to talk about woke neoliberalism. It's just like woke imperialism, right? And so, <laughs> and so it's, it's basically making conservative institutions like the military or the CIA just more equal opportunity. Look at the hero worship liberals had over like uh, Colin Powell or Condoleezza Rice. Look know. at how much money Amy McGrath has gotten. Yeah. Yeah. And she's, she's yeah, a vet I, too, right? Yes, she, she is. is. And, yeah. and, and I know progressives in Kentucky who can't stand her. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, just to be fair, I would, I would offer, uh, you know, a big, a big moment for me yeah, I always ask people, uh, who are you accountable to in your political work? Like, who are, who are the people that you have to answer to? Um, and that is essentially a mirror for your behavior in the world. And for me, that's Afghans and Iraqis. Um, sure. But I did, a, um, I did a training a number of years ago that was put on by Ruckus at Highlander Center. And it was with Endelon, the National Day Laborers Organizing Network. And I remember, you know, going in there as this like hot, hot veteran, like I've got all these ideas, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna like help educate these people. And I just remember we were sitting around a fire one night and I'm talking about how, you know, the military is all bad and we should abolish it and all this. And um, this woman around the fire was like, well, look, you had the opportunity to make a mistake and join the US military. And we want that opportunity too. We want that right to make our own stupid decisions. 
even if they end up being like pro-imperialist or they end up like ruining people's lives, we have the right to make that choice. And you don't have the right to deny that to us. And it was one of those moments where you're, you're like, wow, the world is not black and white. And that sucks. Cause I was raised to think there was permanence and everything was straightforward. <laughs> it's just, it's a mess. Um, so yeah, I, you know, it, it, is it, is, should we all have the right to, to be in the military? I guess so. It's not the campaign I'm going to, throw my life on the line for but yet again if we don't provide alternative economic pathways for youth who the hell are we to tell people not to become middle class when they're in poverty oh yeah i mean i i don't think any of us are, are saying women shouldn't be allowed or gay shouldn't be allowed in the military I, like my point is exactly what you just said like we we need to organize so people don't have to you know aren't, aren't forced with that option that they have no alternative but but to do that because it gives you a, a paycheck and, and, and insurance and and but, but the point about imperialism, I think, is really vital because, um, you know, it, it, and, you know, I'm ambivalent about Bernie Sanders, but um, he doesn't say a whole lot about uh, foreign policy stuff. You know, he's probably better than the rest of those folks, but it, but it ain't great. So uh, and, and, and I think you, you know, people who've been in the, in the service like you've been abroad, like you have a have a, a way to speak about that, that, you know, most of us don't. Uh, switching, switching gears a little bit. Well, first of all, I want to say thanks for joining us, Graham. We're not, we're not done, but I'm going to do a little station identification. Uh, folks, you're listening to Graham Kluppner with Bob and I here on the Green and Red podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you want to become a donor, you can do, go to patreon.com backslash Green Red podcast and become a donor. We have a small but mighty donor base. Uh, and then also just to put it out there, if you like this podcast, give us a five-star review on whatever you're listening to it on. Uh, and kind of going back to Graham, you're involved in climate organizing, anti-fossil fuel organizing. You know, before the show, we actually talked about um, the military be, having like one of the largest, carb having the largest carbon footprint in the world. Um, and so just to kind of get into the politics of actually what we talked about in our last episode, which is around big green, we talked about planning the humans for folks who haven't listened, you should totally listen. Um, but how, why do you think that the, the climate nonprofit industrial complex and various parts of the climate movements don't campaign on the, on the carbon footprint of the military? I think part of it is that a lot of organizations are getting grants from the federal government and it's tough to take grants from the federal government and also try to overthrow the federal government. I think there's a, there's a difficult component there. I, I, after Vietnam, the military took a deep look at itself, the U S military and what they found, they made a number of conclusions about why they lost the war. One of those conclusions was that, press freedom was too open, that the media was able to go wherever it wanted in Vietnam, talk to whoever it wanted to, um, and it was able to provide a, 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 an alternative viewpoint to what was happening on the ground, which helped turn a significant portion of the American population against the war. So one conclusion was let's restrict press freedom in, in wars, uh, which was, has been done. For example, you've never seen a dead American on national television. It's illegal. Um, you until Obama, you weren't allowed to see the caskets coming home uh, from the wars of American soldiers. That's very intentional. Uh, another conclusion that was made by the military was that they wanted to move away from a draft and they wanted to professionalize services to the point of let's keep people in for a career of 20 years as opposed to drafting people for two years, training them and then like letting them go home. Uh, 
So in order to keep people in the military, they added things like economic benefits, housing, uh, you know, healthcare, and those that led to a significant amount, a portion of the people staying in longer. They also uh, opened up the military in 1974 to women and have continued to open up different jobs. So you have a whole larger pool to draw from in terms of recruits. And so these decisions were made in response to what they saw as a failure. And what that has also done is, you know, we heard this language during the Reagan era and really throughout the 90s of, um, you know, kicking the, the Vietnam ghost or overcoming the, the failure of Vietnam in our American psyche, right? But and in George, a lot of ways- George H.W. H. W. Bush said after we won in Kuwait. Yes. We beat the yes, Vietnam had, syndrome. Yeah, we beat the Vietnam syndrome, like, because you got you to gotta fight a war to fix your psychology, right? Um, and so once 9-11 happened, like a lot of these policies of restricting information, um, you know, were put into place. But it's important to understand that a culture was built. You know, in the 1990s, you had movies like Saving Private Ryan. And you had this real look back to World War II as this beautiful war, this thing that was black and white. It was just, we had to fight the Nazis and we got them. And so, you know, people like me who were raised in the 90s and were watching all of these, these things, I mean, I consumed war films like, like nothing else and books and media. So we were primed in a way for the post 9-11 world. We were ready to go. And once 9-11 happened, it was like, oh, yeah, well, no shit. I've got to join the military and go get these, these bad people that are just like Nazis, right? And those, those, that, that culture has led to a whole bunch of problems. Number one, it's led to the problem that we can't really talk about these wars. That's where I, I talked about the thank you for your service component, where it's really just this, you know, we heroize all of these soldiers. And what that does is it makes us not be able to ask critical questions about, hey, I know that you sacrificed and suffered. I know that you may have believed in that at the time. Do you still believe in that? Do you think it was worth it for us to go to these wars? That's a question that's more scary to ask as a civilian to a veteran than it is to say, hey, did you kill anybody? which is not a great question either, but like is harder to ask. Um, and what that has done is it's created this buffer that we do not cross about conversation. And so when we're thinking about the climate movement, the idea of incorporating uh, a critique of militarism, well, God, that would critique the soldiers. And then that would be unpatriotic. And especially as a Democrat, you don't want to criticize it because the Democrats have made this calculation that they got their ass kicked in 2004 with the Kerry election because they weren't militaristic enough. Now you would think that that because we've continued or the Democrats have continued to get their ass kicked, um, whether they become even more militarist than the Republicans in their language, uh, it's not working, right? So I think there's part of it is just that we're all kind of damaged from the last 20 years of warfare. We don't know how to talk about it. And so we just like pretend it's not happening. We don't want to think about it. Let's just focus on climate change. It's not controversial. It's based in science. We're all fans of science. And if we stay in that realm, we'll be okay. So part of this is like we, it's a, it's a, it's a cultural systemic trauma that we've engaged in and we are all guilty. We're all accountable for that as all 320 million of us, whether we march in the streets against the war or we march on the, in the streets of Baghdad, we're all accountable. Differential, you know, what do they say in the UN, uh, um, same but differentiated responsibilities or whatever, <laughs> you know, um, we're all responsible for that, but our, that influences our inability to talk about this. So one of the hopes that I have is if we could actually like, use some real intersectionality and combine um, militarist and climate work together, we would have a hell of a lot more power. 
And one of the fears is we, what you saw in January, where it looked like we might be headed for World War III in the span of 24 hours once we start, you know, the United States starts targeting uh, leaders from other countries in Iran. Um, there was, we didn't know what to do. There was no anti-war movement just waiting to like mobilize. You know, it's, a, it's a, the same thing that happened in terms of climate change. We would have at least had regional networks that could have like mobilized and fought and stood up. And we didn't have that. Um, and we've got to build that, uh, you know, we've got to build that out. We've got to have more understanding of, of look, it's not just the bombs that are dropping, uh, the depleted uranium we're leaving, the amount of waste, the burn pits. It's not just that. We're talking about every military base has massive amounts of concrete. Concrete is one of the worst carbon emitters on the planet, and people don't even think about it. So you've got tons of concrete. You've got JP8, jet fuel. You've got transportation networks that need to go. You get, when you invade a country, you've got tons of trucks that have to be refueled with diesel. Um, there's an incredible amount of missions that are happening just with daily operations. Um, and one of the things I looked at in grad school when I was trying to figure, okay, if we can't abolish the military, how can we like at least maybe transition it into a way that it does less damage? Um, I looked at this idea of like, could you possibly transition the military into just like a climate reaction organization? So its job would be like helping refugees uh, move and feed them or, or putting our medical ships like we have in some cases with tsunamis or the Pakistan earthquake in 2005. There's been moments where the U.S. military can actually play, it's dangerous, it's a dangerous slippery slope, but it can play a role in ameliorating mass suffering um, if you put the guns away, because these are young people. It's similar to like what the WPA did and the New Deal and, and uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps. Could you shift the military away from like overt invasions and into something where they're you know, helping you when a dam, I don't know, breaks in Michigan, can you have the military like play a role to help evacuate people? Um, yeah, I, and I, unfortunately, I think that that's the best hope we have in the short term um, is trying to like do something like that as opposed to just being a purist and say, either we abolish the military or I don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Well, you have, a, I think, a situation now where there's even more support all across the, the, the political spectrum. You know, the military budgets generally pass with, with zero votes against them or five votes against them. And wasn't Elizabeth Warren's plan, a uh, global warming plan to turn the military green? Was it her, I think? Yeah, she had some components. So, um, yeah, so I think, I, I, and, and I mean, how do you address that? Because you're not just, you know, you can caricature some, you know, strange love nut, but you're dealing with the entire political structure now, which is, which is connected to the military, which is pro-military, which votes for military budgets, which are, you know, getting bigger all the time. And so how do you break through? I mean, because uh, like I said before, you know, you're going to have a better shot at it than I'm just a dumb lefty professor. You know, Scott's just a, a San Francisco activist, but you have, you know, credibility. Well, I do think that the background that you all have in the labor movement helps a lot. Um, you know, I think that especially with the demographics of the military, like, let's just be honest, you're, you're doing a dance of masculinity that, you know, that's what I'm playing on when I'm actually engaging with a lot of these men that are either susceptible to recruitment in far right networks or are, are like libertarian, like the right wing American libertarian, not the good kind. So you have to, you're doing this dangerous dance where you're kind of leaning in on, on some, some unhealthy uh, masculinity to be able to build trust with these people. And then you're trying to like pull them in a different direction. Um, I think another threat within this, and I, I spoke about this a little bit before, but part of that post-Vietnam syndrome that, that we've been wrestling with is 
you know, the inability to question the military bleeds into this because people in the military are told that you can't trust civilians. So when I was trying to leave the military, when I was at the end of my, my time there, you know, there was a big push to get me to re-enlist. And a lot of the narratives were like, well, you get, you're going to go out into the normal world. You're going to be around shitbags who are lazy, who don't do anything. They don't, they don't work out. They're not like bettering themselves. They're not doing anything of worth in the world. Why would you go be around those people? And part of that is this narrative that, uh, you know, there was this famous film Tom Cruise was in years ago. I can't remember what the hell the name was, but there's this line in it where it's like, you can't handle the truth. And the few entire good, a few frame, good men. few good men. Yeah. It's the entire frame for, for people in the military is like civilians can't handle the truth. They want us to go over there and blow shit up and fix the problem. They don't want to know how the sausage is made. And you can't tell them because if you start telling them, then they'll think the sausage shouldn't be made. And there's an assumption that, you know, I've said it before, ours is not the reason why, ours is but to do and die. And that's a frame many people in the military have. Like, I don't talk, I'm not supposed to talk about politics. In fact, I'm not supposed to vote. It's not my job to vote as an active duty soldier. It's my job to carry out what the voters tell me to do. It's and a line in Saving Private out. Ryan too, by the way. Yes. Yeah, we've got, we've got to break out of that narrative as soldiers and veterans. That's the work that we have to do because when we do speak out, people listen to us. And if enough of us veterans do speak up and speak out, then who knows what could happen. The flip side of this, though, is that social movements, left social movements, need to do a much better job of welcoming veterans into their communities, not being afraid of us, not thinking that, um, you know, I, I've said this on other podcasts, but uh, when I was brought into the anti-war movement, I was lucky because at the time that I came in, it was like pre-2013 id poll revolution stuff. So I was able to actually sit in rooms with people and make mistakes, like say verbal, offensive verbal things that would make me blacklisted at this point if I said it in a meeting. But at the time, I was allowed to make those mistakes with the understanding that I would get better. And people took me aside and said, hey, Graham, that's, you know, the thing you said is offensive or, you know, can you just try to you know, understand that these people you care about are being hurt by what you're doing or saying. And then I wanted to change. Then I actually, I didn't want to hurt my friends. Um, but if I had been challenged in the, in, you know, right at walking into a meeting and somebody has started you know, yelling at me for something I'd said or the way I looked or how I was acting, and I just didn't understand the context, didn't understand the culture, then I probably would have walked out and I wouldn't be doing this work today. So we have to do a much better job of having patience. Of course, no one should ever be actually materially unsafe. You know, if someone, if there's a veteran that's having serious issues, you know, that needs to be addressed as well. I'm not saying like suck it up and deal with it, but I am saying that let's understand, again, we have to talk to people that we disagree with. We're going to be uncomfortable with it. Uh, we're all stuck in this country together, whether we like it or not. And, um, you know, barring another civil war until we get to that point, we've got to find a way to work together. Trump has is, is tried to talk about privatizing the VA. He would like to do that. He's put cronies who, like, in most of the people he's appointed. Are, what's the, the general sense? I mean, VA affects all of you, right? And, and it's not inherently political. But um, are, are you finding more people, more, more soldiers, more vets who are kind of getting involved politically? just because of that, because the VA system right now is, is kind of imperiled. Well, one of the fantastic tactics that the right wing uses is they, is they call out a government agency and they say it doesn't work and then they defund it. And yeah. so it doesn't work. And so right. 
post office. Great tactic. Yeah, it's very effective. Um, and they've done it with the VA since uh, the Bush administration. But really, since Cheney and the Gulf War, there's been this attempt to privatize all components of, of the military healthcare system and the, and the active duty military. Um, most veterans would tell you that the, the VA is a right, that, that universal health care for veterans is a right. Um, I would say that there's, look, the doctors and the nurses, especially within the VA system, are amazing people. They are, uh, if there are heroes out there, those, those are people who are saving people's lives on a daily basis and keeping veterans and families of veterans alive. Uh, they need more money. They need more support. And we absolutely do not want to be going to civilian hospitals. We don't want to be, uh, you know, there's a, there's a fundamentally different medical, medical issues that veterans are dealing with that they need to be with specialists and they need to be in centers. Now, there's a drawback to this because I think, you know, when you go back to the Civil War, one of the great things that created Mother's Day, for example, many people don't know Mother's Day is not about celebrating your mom. Mother's Day was a holiday started by mothers of sons who died in the Civil War on both sides of the conflict. And they came together to found this holiday to be like, never again, right? Now it's a Hallmark holiday. But uh, there was this exposure to uh, Civil War veterans and the healthcare needs, the red tape that they couldn't get through. They couldn't find their files because it was wrapped in red tape in, in Washington, D.C. and they couldn't get there to figure out what their medical issues were. And the civilian population saw that. They saw the issues that veterans were dealing with and that had a profound impact. We separated that so much now that civilians don't even really know what goes on at a veterans hospital. We don't know where they are. This is kind of something that's on the hill over there and some other people go there. So there are some components I think we could like expose uh, about the healthcare challenges we have, but the solution is not to privatize the VA. The solution is to fully fund the VA. And here's the reason we don't do that. If we fully fund the VA instead of funding it uh, uh, only a year after each budget comes up, we literally vote on the VA every single year instead of making a 20 year or 30 year uh, funding choice in Congress is so that we don't include the amount of money it costs to take care of our, our veterans and our, our, our war veterans. We don't tell the American people what that costs and it's not included in our military budget. So when, when you see, oh, hey, the war in Afghanistan is gonna cost $80 billion over the next 10 years, that doesn't include right. what it's gonna cost to take care of the veterans that you put in that war for the next 100 years. And you know, studies in 2011 were saying that an average soldier who was deployed to Iraq was going to cost one and a half million dollars of healthcare costs for the rest of their life. Now that's probably way higher than that now. Yeah. Um, um, but we don't focus on that. Steiglitz and Bilmes, uh, when they wrote a book, I forget when, uh, sometime back, uh, they figured that in and, and it was in the trillions, the cost of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were in the trillions just because of that. You know, there's an anomaly going on here, and I just wonder how you feel about it, because we're told to love the troops, right? And if you criticize them, you're unpatriotic and everything else. But you have a president who, um, during, during the campaign, attacked Gold Star parents and, uh, you know, uh, is trying to defund the VA, pardoned a, a guy who was an open war criminal, right, uh, against the advice of, of the brass. Uh, which, which, which war criminal was that? Well, the one... Uh, the Navy SEAL. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. The, the Navy SEAL who... Uh, you know, was taking pictures next to dead body. Everybody, I mean, his own yeah. people, the guy's a psychopath and Trump uh, pardoned him after even the brass said, no, you can't do that. I mean, so how do you square that? Like, we're supposed to love you and adore you and never criticize you. But at the same time, the government really doesn't give a shit about you. All of that's true. Uh, you know, I think that, look, the guy in, in the case of this Navy SEAL guy, his unit turned him in, his, yeah, his yeah, men yeah. turned him in. 
Um, and it was the officer class that protected him. And it was the enlisted or the working class of the military that, that were like, they took a risk to their entire careers and potentially getting a bullet in the back of the head to call them yeah. out. And, and when you have a president overturn that, that puts their lives at risk. So you have a president sure. straight up risking other people's lives. It's horrifying. I think a lot of soldiers in the military, so sailors, Marines, airmen, they look at stuff like this. They don't want, look, we, our constitution very specifically says that we have civilian leadership over the military. And the point of that is that we don't have generals like Dr. Strangelove shit going nuts and starting wars overseas because they want to benefit themselves, you know? Um, but in this situation, you have kind of the inverse problem where I actually would much rather have military leaders making decisions right now because at least they're aware of the experience and they're, you know, like Donald Trump is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Donald Trump is just somebody that uh, should not be having anything to do with military decision-making. And I think a lot of soldiers and people in the military see that, um, that they, they know that there's no loyalty there. They'll get stabbed in the back if they don't, if they don't follow the political narrative. Um, so I think a lot of people are just kind of keeping their heads down. And it raises a lot of questions about like, if there was actually a coup in the United States or some sort of major, like, you know, you add on to COVID-19, you add, I don't call it two hurricanes the size of Harvey this summer, a couple of dam failures and maybe like a real economic crash. And the United States is not immune to, to coup d'etats. The United States is not immune to revolutionary activity. Uh, and the big question becomes like, what, where does the military come down on that? When there's, when there's a question, like if the president straight up violates some component of the constitution that's black and white uh, and everybody sees it, you know, are the secret service going to do something about that? Is the military going to say, you know, we want president Pence or we want, we want a caretaker government from the military temporarily, or we're just going to go along with it and do whatever the president says. I mean, that's, in revolutionary moments, that's always a major question, whether you look through the so-called Arab Spring or you look at Chinese Revolution in the 1940s and 50s. You, I mean, any of these moments, uh, the Bonus Army, you're asking questions about what role and where does the military, the active duty military and the officer class fall on this? And I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think that we're still seeing that. I think there's been some tactics within higher leadership in the military where they're trying to, what's called slow walking information, where they, they, they're not like keeping it from the president, but they're not like advertising it and being like, Mr. President, you should pay attention to this issue. They're just trying to keep it in the lower levels so that they don't have to um, potentially have a bad decision. But this if, is, uh, if it does something like completely violating the, the ethics and moral code so-called of the U.S. military, it's possible you could have uh, people just straight up resist orders. No, I've, I've thought about this a lot. I, I to, to brag a little, I know, you know, a fair amount about this stuff. And, uh, you know, in the Vietnam era, uh, a lot of officers were opposed to the war. They thought it was stupid. Uh, and, you know, in Nixon's final days, I mean, Kissinger and the brass got together and essentially decided they weren't going, if Nixon told them to blow something up, they weren't going to do it. And I, but I don't think I've ever seen anything actually quite open, like I'm seeing right now, where you have military guys who are more or less, uh, you know, repudiating Trump. And so that's a good question because I've Scott and I've talked about that. You know, what happens if if it does come to that crisis point? What will they do? You know, will they just ignore him? Uh, and and uh, you know, I was wondering. You know, in, after the Soleimani assassination, it's like, well, you know, what if Trump tries to invade Iran? You know, actually, like do something like an invasion. You know, would they go along with it? So that's a great. Yeah, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I actually don't think so either. It's funny because what you said earlier is exactly what I said, and, and I can't believe you know I'm I'm a lefty. 
I, in the last 40 years, I'd rather have seen the military making foreign policy than the civilians. <laughs> we would have, I think, been, been you know, uh, it'd have been a, a little less bloody. So I, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, that's scary to think about. But uh, sure. Graham, it has been great uh, having you on. So I, I, I'm just yeah. amazing, just the wonderful. Yeah, and one last question as we as we wrap up is like you're kind of engaged in a campaign around the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, do you want to tell tell our audience a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, important going on. And and my one question is: Has Trans Mountain Pipeline work been deemed essential by the Canadian government? <laughs> yes, it has. Um, so the I work with an organization called the Mosquito Fleet. What we do is we're kind of like a a mini Greenpeace. It doesn't have to report our finances to the federal government. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So what we do is, is we kind of have this idea of a thin green line where, um, you know, in order to get oil, coal, and gas to market, aka primarily to Asia, um, although that is shifting, um, you know, we have a lot of deposits in North America that we try to, the U.S. government tries to get out and sell. Um, and we know that the pipelines as they exist and the export terminals as they exist are primarily centered down in Texas and Louisiana and a bit on the East Coast. But there's difficulty in building more of those pipelines. It's already like pretty stacked up. Um, and the best and easiest and cheapest way to get those to market is to go through the Pacific Northwest. There's still a lot of ports that haven't been, infrastructure hasn't been built up super a lot. Now in Canada, you have what's called tar sands or oil sands. Um, in the province of Alberta and the Canadian government for about 15 years has been developing and really economically benefiting from export of this, the dirtiest fossil fuel out there. Um, and there, you know, we all know about the Keystone XL pipeline, but the Trans Mountain pipeline is three times the size of Keystone. It's the, basically the Trudeau government has put their political stamp on this. They want to build it really badly. They're doing it over the demands of many unceded territories of First Nations, Indigenous communities in Canada. Uh, there's tribes that have been fighting this for their entire lives, um, especially the Saleo with Tooth Nation, which is uh, in Burnaby, but close to Burnaby in, in North Vancouver. Um, and the Mosquito Fleet, the role we kind of play in this is, is uh, you know, we hope uh, is when all of the other stuff breaks down, the, whether it's the lawyers filing uh, lawsuits or getting um, environmental protection statements and all of the, the vastly important work that is usually the thing that kills these pipelines before they ever get to a stage where you see a standing rock, but we kind of hope to come in and, and accelerate the issue and point out, um, you know, by, by putting our bodies in between these boats trying to ship stuff or locking down to, to pipelines, we try to, to bring that, that um, direct action to the, into the fight. And in terms of, of the pipeline where it's at right now, we've defeated it once before, and then the Canadian government uh, bought it from Kinder Morgan, which is a Texas corporation that is uh, specializes in buying really shitty old pipelines that uh, are breaking and then just using them as is because it's a lot cheaper. Well, this was too expensive of a pipeline for Kinder Morgan. And so the Canadian government literally nationalized the pipeline to protect it during construction. So it's not affected by the market price of oil, which is really unfortunate. Um, and so now the Canadian taxpayers are on the hook for as of a couple days ago, it was $12.6 billion dollars. When it was originally proposed, it was somewhere around $4 billion. And we're seeing um, not only with the collapse of oil prices, uh, but with the increase in the cost of the pipeline, we're seeing the first poll showing uh, a majority of Canadians opposed to the pipeline for the first time, which is really wonderful, uh, especially in the province of British Columbia, where it goes out, which is just north of where I am right now. 
Um, and there's a whole network of folks fighting this, but we need more. We need more people on both sides of the border to be putting pressure on the Canadian government, um, to be putting pressure on communities up in Canada and those buyers of the potential product. If this pipeline is built, it's, you know, we've heard it game over for the climate many times, but this is literally the last pipeline on earth. You build this one and like it's game over for any kind of climate movement. So we spend most of our time working on this in the mosquito fleet. And if you want to support the work we're doing um, here in the United States in the Pacific Northwest, you can go to mosquitofleet.us uh, and learn about the pipeline. You can support us economically. We're kind of a ragtag group of, of land lovers and sailors that try to, uh, you know, get out there and raise these issues. And there's also a lot of financial resources that could be used in Canada for some of the lawsuits that are still ongoing and some of the, the tribes that are fighting this up there. Yeah. Hooray for the riffraff, for the troublemakers oh, yeah. on the pipelines. <laughs> um, so Graham, it's been great having you on today. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Yeah, uh, thank you guys so much. Yeah, we've really enjoyed it. Uh, folks, you're listening to Green and Red Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can become a donor. You can join our donor class, our, our seven-person donor class, at patreon.com backslash redgreenpodcast. And if you like this podcast, uh, rate, give us a five-star review. Right. Yep. Thanks again, Graham. I, I, uh, you're up there now with uh, Smedley Butler and David Shu and all those guys. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's... That's very, that's a class I want to be in. Yeah. Uh, good talking to you. Uh, talk to you later. Bye, folks. Bye.